Hello, dear listener. Welcome to Sound Economics, the Stockholm School of Economics official podcast. My name is Victor White, and I'm a third-year student here at the school. In this first episode, I sit down with Carl Wenberg. He's a prominent researcher within the fields of entrepreneurship and innovation policy. Together with Christian Sandström, he just released a book, Questioning the Entrepreneurial State. And that's what our conversation is about. Enjoy the episode, and if you're interested about the book, you can find it in the link in the description. So, Carl, welcome to uh, Sound Economics, the Stockholm School of Economics podcast. Pleasure to be here. Nice, nice. So, I was thinking that we can get to know the man behind the words a little bit. So, would you care to share a bit about yourself and and your past, how, how you got to where you are today? Well, um, I'm a professor uh, at the Stockholm School of Economics. Um, I did my PhD here back in the days, 15 years ago. Um, I, I have an undergrad in psychology and economics from University of Gothenburg and also studied in Japan, Denmark, Spain and the UK. Um, and somehow got interested in entrepreneurship. Okay. Uh, I ran a couple of small businesses and I wrote my thesis on failed entrepreneurs. This was back in 07, 08. And suddenly, with the financial crisis, there was a lot of interest in bankruptcies and failures. So I guess my research and uh, teaching efforts got started from then. Uh, and it's been uh, uphill uh, since then. It's been very fun. Uh, entrepreneurship and entrepreneurialism has become kind of like a mainstream. Whereas when we studied at the university back in the 90s, this was odd. You know, this yeah. is strange. Why should you not finish your degree and have a stable job? Why should you uh, start a company with friends and, and borrow money from venture capitalists and go to the banks, etc., um, instead of having like a steady, stable and predictable career pattern? So I yeah. think uh, over the last couple of generations that all have somehow changed. And that's, of course, very exciting. Interesting. So this idea or curiosity about entrepreneurship, is that something that came about during your studies abroad or is it something that you've always been? You mentioned the 2008 crisis. Is that sort of when when your passion for entrepreneurship came around? Uh, I started studying entrepreneurship way before that. But I mean, I guess it's a combination of, you know, academic curiosity and also everyday experience. I ran a couple of businesses, some of my friends did as well, uh, and, and uh, reflecting upon that and also how we dealt with that in university at the time, entrepreneurship uh, and entrepreneurship education was very non-existent at business schools back in the 1990s. And now it's very mainstream. Um, so I think that's fun and you can also see it in particular among the students, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think if anything, it's the students uh, and, and young people in general that drive this. It's not we as educators, nor um, government officials, or uh, even venture capitalists. We're just sort of uh, enjoying the ride and, and trying to catch up. So speaking about uh, government officials and, and venture capitalists, um, You've uh, recently released a book um, mm. which have received a lot of attention globally. Um, can, you, can you share a bit about, about the book and, 
Mm. Yeah, so the book is called Questioning the Entrepreneurial State. And it really is a type of um, academic mash pit <laughs> of, of different authors with different perspectives that discuss this notion of uh, entrepreneurial state. Can government and states be entrepreneurial, um, start new organizations and help in the uh, initiation of new organization? If so, how? Um, and in a sense, it's a little bit like a debate book because there's been earlier arguments that yes, they can and they should. Uh, governments who should step up and be more entrepreneurial. And that of course leads to questions like what does it mean to be entrepreneurial or innovative? Uh, what's the difference between you know, a, a, a government doing this versus a company versus a young student? Um, what's, what are the pros and cons, etc.? Yeah, very interesting. So I, I thought I'd just read the the opening line of the book here for the listeners. So um, it, it says uh, Western economies are struggling to recover from a decade of plagued by structural crises, an ongoing pandemic, a decade, a high unemployment and sluggish growth. As progressively looser monetary and fiscal policies have not helped, both the EU and national governments have increasingly turned towards interventionist industrial policies. Can you share a bit about these interventionist industrial policies? Wh what do you mean by that? Oh, that's a lot of academic uh, sounding words. But what it means is essentially industrial policy is how authorities govern um, and encourage or discourage various types of investments. For example, uh, a classic industrial policy is how can we get this type of industry going? Say, um, a tech industry or uh, a clothing industry uh, or a defense industry. Something that the government sees as essential for uh, society to have uh, and uh, somehow being better or, or, or more existent in another country. And that of course leads to questions like, okay, so how do you set this up? How do you encourage it, right? Because an industry uh, per definition is a collection of companies, right? They yeah. compete and trade, some are suppliers, uh, some are customers, etc. So you can't just set those up. Mm. You have to sort of set the table and hope that these companies are started and grow. So how do you set the table? And that's kind of like a classical question uh, in terms of industrial policy, but also entrepreneurship policy. Because entrepreneurship is, of course, about the new and growing ventures, right? So if you are a decision maker, can be a local decision maker in a municipality or county, or, or, or a national or even a global decision maker, how do you kind of set the table for these companies to emerge, right? Mm. If there are no biotech companies mm. in your area and you think this is really important, mm. um, how do you kind of encourage those companies to come, mm. right? What are the driving mechanisms? And there's been a lot of experiments and studies about that since, you know, 1950s onwards. Mm. And, and so, so what are the tensions when it comes to the entrepreneurial states and when we look at, uh, for example, EU 
um, incentives that are being rolled out to incentivize entrepreneurship because that's something that's been brought up in this book mm. how entrepreneurship um, essentially has to come from uh, th that you can't make an industry out of it uh, am i correct or am mm. i wrong no uh, you're right so one can sort of boil down this to to uh, a simple but important conundrum right mm. uh, if you are very creative victor mm. and i feel like i need to be creative too mm. or rather i want my kids to be creative as you are what's the best way mm. should i scold them and say you guys need to be more creative or should I come up with some idea of how to get them to be more creative? Mm. Or is creativity something that just some people have and others mm. don't? And that's kind of the conundrum, right? Mm. So when, um, when people think of entrepreneurship, they often think about specific companies, specific people, specific places. Mm. Um, in, 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 in a small city, maybe they think of of Stockholm or Berlin and, and say we want to be more like them. We want to have mm. these high-tech startups and cool companies um, so we can have a more dynamic industry, better products, etc. In many European countries we look at, of course, the United States. We are, why can't we be more like them, like in Boston, mm. San Francisco? We want to have these industries that grow and create uh, dynamism and, and create a lot of jobs. Mm. Um, maybe we should go on a study tour. Mm. So we go and study Silicon Valley and try to come up with some success recipes mm. of how to create that. The problem with those success recipes is that what you see today is not necessarily how it was created. Mm. So how to get behind the superficial, what looks to be here and now versus how it really emerged. Mm. Uh, so in a sense, it's, it's something that many, if not everyone, is trying to do. But it's also a pretty impossible feat because how can you sort of artificially create something that is kind of uh, spontaneously, dynamically evolving? Mm. I mean, how can we recreate Silicon Valley mm. in, I don't know, uh, Bremen or Mjölby. Mm. Mm. Yeah, interesting. So what one of the aspects that are being brought forth in this book is the idea or I guess fact of uh, bottom-up versus top-down. Mm. And I guess this ties into industrial policy, which is sort of top-down, mm. whereas um, I, I think the case is made that entrepreneurship and innovation is very much a bottom-up process. Mm. Yet we want to incentivize these things. However, the beauty of it is that you don't know where the next invention comes from or from whom. Mm. Could you share a bit on, on, on that aspect? Mm -hmm. Right. So you're completely right. Uh, and for me as an educator and a curious academic, mm. that's kind of the beauty behind it, right? Mm. Whomever would have think that, you know, uh, selling uh, blonde hair uh, globally through the internet would be a multi-million uh, dollar business, which is the case of, of a venture in northern Sweden, Raspunzel, right? Mm. Uh, hairdresser. Uh, who would have think that, uh, you know, um, uh, making a, a, a cellular phone 
that has lousy battery capacity, uh, lousy uh, voice technology, uh, costs a million, um, and, and uh, uh, doesn't really have a good handset, you can send text messages on it. Who will think that that would be like an everyday gadget? I'm talking about the iPhone, of course, right? Mm. So predicting the next big thing uh, is inherently impossible. We mm. can imagine the next big thing and then we can envision the needs for new things. But envisioning the needs is not the same th thing as kind of designing or, or initiating it, right? That mm. comes from all these, these um, random events. Uh, I think uh, a good comparison is um, uh, the car industry, yeah. right? Uh, the car industry is uh, a very stable, a very large industry, lots mm. of important stakeholders, um, and uh, the car industry in Europe is, is centralized in, in Germany, where we have a lot of good engineers, you have a lot of, of, of uh, successful banks that are co-owners. You also have, have governments and uh, local authorities being important stakeholders, say in Stuttgart, mm. right? So what happens when all these stakeholders come together to discuss the core industry's future and how to improve things? Uh, well, in Volkswagen Corporation, what happened was cheating, right? They yeah. cheated on the engines. Mm, the emission scandal is what the emission scandal, about. right? Yeah. And uh, uh, that sad story came about uh, when a lot of co-aligned actors had kind of incentives for that to happen, right? Mm. You had the engineers that had the demands on doing stuff they really couldn't or wouldn't. Mm. You had ownership among banks among local authorities. They were mindful of the local jobs and not those jobs being offshored. Um, you had uh, these companies, right? Um, mm. So in a sense, that's a warning signal, I think, what can happen if you have a lot of co-aligned stakeholders mm. that have vested interest mm. in this industry being in a specific location, functioning in a specific way. If you compare that to, say, uh, you and me discussing where we should invest our money, mm. and I tell you, I know this South African bloke, I mean, he's a bit crazy and, and high on dope once in a while, <laughs> but it's really good. You know, he created this company called PayPal. So let's mm. just not mind the craziness and invest comp in this new startup called Tesla. Mm. Nobody would have made those investments mm. 10, 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, a few did. And mm. those are pretty lucky now. Mm. So Tesla Motors have by itself mm. shifted how the global automobile manufacturing industry mm. works mm. and thinks. And everybody is mimicking Tesla and trying to be Tesla. Mm. That's an entrepreneurial feat, right? Mm. Being before the others, mm. having the vision before the others, thinking in a new way, in a different way, etc. Mm. And this we kind of know from research. The new radical innovations don't come from the inside. Mm. They come from the outside. So I think the real danger with these top-down industrial policies is that you can only observe what is al already existing. Mm. So you focus on the current actors, mm. the regions, the authorities, the companies, the employees, 
and you try to get them to change or improve or create something new. And uh, the modal outcome is that nothing happens. Mm. Uh, worst case, you have something like Volkswagen, a scandal happens. But what you really want is something like Tesla, something new and better, uh, which is not only better in terms of customer satisfaction, but in this case also better for, for global environment to emerge. Those type of innovations tend to come from the outside. Very interesting, very interesting. And you touched upon a few things there. One aspect can sort of be the herd mentality. And what immediately comes up in my mind is sort of the flight to safety. Um, as the example you gave with the existing car industry mm. and how you sort of need a catalyst to come into an industry and um, innovate mm. in it. Mm. Uh, but it seems to me along with that, because what I'm thinking about as we, we are in sort of a challenging place, globally speaking now, mm. where um, the system that we live in sort of is, is more, um, it, it has, you know, it, it, we are more people um, and, and from my perspective, you know, when, when, when these sort of systems that we live under, um, and maybe we can touch a bit on, on property rights and so forth, um, but, but we sort of need to, human beings are wired in a way where we want to be able to plan, we, we don't want too much insecurity, right? At the same time, it can be said that the future is uncertain, mm. right? So in terms of, I guess, that whole whole aspect uh, and when we're talking about the innovations and and especially the climate because because that's something that I'm very passionate about mm. um, and so what what is a good good approach to that dealing with with the climate so mm. so to say Tesla is a great example with mm. electric cars and and then you sort of get the effect of other car makers coming along. Mm. Um, and, and in that, you also, as you mentioned, you have this, I think Steve Jobs called it the beehive effect, right? With when everyone is doing the same thing, you sort of, you know, you get the sort of a beehive, right? Mm. And you need someone from the outside mm. to, to come in. But um, so, so Sorry for mumbling a bit around everywhere because this is so interesting to me. Um, but in terms of the fa challenges that, that we do face as a, as a humanity and, and science and so forth, uh, and, and when it comes to innovation, and with me having a past as a professional athlete, I also know that we can push ourselves and make a positive difference if we set our mind to it. Mm collectively, mm. right? So, so what are your, your opinions or sort of um, to young people out there um, when it comes to having an entrepreneurial mindset mm. and things to be aware of or things to think about? Because it's also really difficult as a young person to drive your thoughts and opinions through in a world that can be seen as very noisy at times mm. and so forth. Uh, yeah, those were many good questions at yeah. one point, uh, uh, Victor. I think the best starting point is, is the young people you talk about. I was teaching entrepreneurship to um, undergrad students a couple of days ago, and then I showed 
two pictures, one being uh, the founding team of Klarna, mm -hmm. who um, was sitting here in this building ad adjacent to ours. Mm. And, and uh, we shared premises, so I was writing my thesis mm. <laughs> in the office next to them. Um, and then at the time, that was like a very old idea, right? Mm. To use your credit cards and pay online, that's kind of insecure, that's a lot of fraud. Mm. They faced some uphill struggles mm. in getting investments, etc. Um, so they were lucky uh, and they were a bit um, uh, foresightful in, in terms of, of having this vision and these ideas mm. before others. Um, they got external support from, from serial entrepreneurs and investors, tech support. I also showed a picture to the students of Greta Thunberg, mm. um, Fridays for Future. Mm. And we discussed, you know, what is entrepreneurship? What is entrepreneurialist? Greta, uh, you know, went to the parliament and had a sit-in protest. Mm. Um, then came her friends from school and suddenly there was a lot of people. Uh, we as parents, uh, you know, I happen to have children in the same school. We mm. kind of joined along and looked at all the kids and like, mm. aren't you going to be at school? Why are you here? And they think it's more important to be here and, you know, make your mm. voice heard uh, to the politicians and not being at school. A lot of the parents joined in and suddenly you have media, etc. And boom, mm. you have a global diffusion. Mm. You have Fridays for Future all over the world. Mm. You have Greta traveling to New York and speaking in the UN. Mm. Um, and that's exa an example of a catalyst then. Uh, exactly. Uh, and, and exactly. A force for, for uh, change and, and for what I would consider good, because I mean, we're on this planet, this spaceship together, mm. right? And mm. So I think on the one hand, uh, uh, there is a frustration, right? There is a frustration and an insecurity. On the other hand, there are tremendous opportunities mm. for making a change and making your voice heard. And there are many different ways of doing so. Uh, you can start a company that produces new goods and services in a better way, more environmental friendly way, uh, more health conscious way, or in any other way that you know th th the customers think this is really attractive, this is what we want. Mm. Um, you can create a sort of global movement like Greta, Mm. Or, or, or you can do something else. I think what is, however, not sort of appreciated well enough mm. is just being a good person and go doing a good job. Mm. Not everyone needs to be that person that makes a major change. Mm. So on the one hand, while I think there are opportunities for doing so, I also think there's like an indirect ideal and uh, pressure uh, on a lot of people, especially young people, to mm. sort of be unique and, and do that. You know, personally speaking, I think it's uh, very tough. Mm. I mean, I would never like to have uh, the life of, 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 of Elon Musk or Greta Thunberg, although mm. I admire them for many things, mm. Greta in particular. That's a tough life, mm. right? Uh, but I think what we also should appreciate is just, you know, finishing your studies, mm. being a supportive person, mm. uh, getting a job and, mm. and doing it well, mm. you know, being nice to friends, creating mm. a stable environment. Mm. Um, because if we see at the world today, that stability is kind of threatened, right? Mm. Um, we have Ukrainian refugees living where I, I live. Um, we have people being worried about 
you know, electricity shortages, food yeah. shortages, global supply chains and what have you. And in this insecurity, there are opportunities, yeah. but there is also dangers. The dangers are obvious. The dangers are that in the face of uncertainty, we opt for quick solutions, mm. short-sighted solutions that mm. we think will bring us safety, but may also bring us harm. Mm. economic harm or other types of harms. Mm. Speaking about uncertainty, um, one word that I came across in this book was Knightian uncertainty. Mm. Could you explain Knightian uncertainty? <laughs> Knightian uncertainty comes from uh, the writings of um, uh, prof Professor Phil Knight at the University of Ch Chicago back in the 20s and 30s. Mm. Um, and uh, what Knight really uh, wrote about at the time is that there is a difference between uncertainty and risk. Mm. Uh, the whole field of statistics and economics kind of emerged from the insurance industry and, and mathematics coming up with algorithm. How can we collectively insure us against disasters? If mm. we everyone subscribes on some type of, of service and we pay a small yearly or monthly fee, we can collectively benefit because if your house is on fire or my house is on fire, our collective pool of money will pay for either of our houses. It's mm. just this monthly, yearly fee, etc. Mm. Uh, and that's about risk reduction, right? Okay. There's other types of risk reductions. For example, we, we have a uh, collective hospital system, we have a collective police defense force, we have mm. other type of collective systems that are supposed to help us, right? Mm. Because as the collective, we can do other things and insurance against, you know, mm. unwarranted, uh, unwarranted outcomes or, or mm. harmful things. Uh, so that's about risk and risk mm. reduction. But risk is something different from uncertainty. Okay. Uncertainty is, you know, what you cannot predict. Yeah. You cannot predict what will happen nor the magnitude of that happening. Mm. Um, and while in principle we can insure us in the insurance companies against anything that is possible to calculate the magnitude uh, um, and the frequency of that outcome, mm. like you know, forest fires and, and floods, mm. we cannot insure us against these very rare or uncertain things. Mm. Uh, and that you can see also in the uh, insurance industry now, which is changing, right? Um, now in the new uh, insurance letters that go out, you have writings like, we can no longer insure your house to floods in 10 or 20 years time, because there may be other types of floods coming mm. through environmental change that we can't predict now. Mm. So I think that while most people especially people you know trading economics like here mm. um, work with risk mm. we make investments we make laws of what to do what to don't um, we try to evaluate policies and procedures to deal with risk and make sound investments the whole idea of you know investments uh, depreciation yeah. cash flow etc that's about you know risk and, and calculus mm. um, uncertainty doesn't really fit in that picture. Mm. But uncertainty is intimately connected to entrepreneurship, right? Mm. In terms of stepping out uh, of the box, 
mm. you know, being outside the beehive, as you said, uh, mm. doing something new and different, and just so see seeing what happens. Mm. Uh, that's something entirely different. And, and in economics, we don't really have a good language for dealing with that. We don't mm. have a mathematical language mm. for dealing with um, uncertainty. Mm. But we do have a mathematical language for dealing with risk. Mm. So that also, you know, provides a little bit of an academic spin mm. on this sort of terminology and this difference. While banks and investors and governments think about risk mm. and they think that, okay, there's a risk here that we don't have this type of industry or we don't have this thing, so we will try to create it. Well, that doesn't really work mm. because you are using formulas and models based on, on risk and risk reduction mm. to try to create something new, which is about uncertainty. Mm. Very interesting, very interesting. Um, so another um, sort of uh, uh, experience that I had uh, my first year here at the university, because I myself, uh, neither my, my mother or my father had a university degree. My mom started university but didn't didn't finish it as I came along. Um, and I have never been the person to read a lot of books. However, it stimulates my mind and I really enjoy it once it's something that I quite enjoy. Mm. And in my university experience I've read a lot of academic texts and, and so forth because that's part of it. But I just wanted to, uh, something that hit me was I, I got a bit frightened in the beginning from certain words. And in macroeconomics, you have endogenous and exogenous. Mm. Could you explain what endogenous and exogenous means? Oh, that's a very good thing, right? And it's very good, Victor, that you're dealing with these words. I mean, I was 25 when I really started to read about this. So I had mm. passed through most of my education kind of avoiding those words, mm. they were a bit scary. Mm. Kind of like, you know, certain conjugations in German or Japanese. Yeah. Um, but you can think of this as outside or inside the box. Mm. Um, and you can think of this also as something that you can affect and something you cannot affect. I mean, if you're an athlete, right, mm. there's a lot of endogenous effects. Mm. I mean, not only what you eat and, and how you practice affects your performance, it's also your mindset, yeah. right? You can set your mind to something. All of that is endogenous. And I guess here, I'm not an athlete, but I guess mm. if the combination of practice, diet, sleep and mindset comes together, mm. you can become very, very good. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of like a recipe for being successful or doing something good. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in, in macroeconomics, you have these models of endogenous growth, mm. for example, by Professor Paul Romer, who got the Nobel Prize Award mm. here in uh, Stockholm a few years ago. Mm. Um, and uh, for him, uh, endogenous growth simply means that if you put these things together, mm. they will kind of coalesce and become larger then it sums. Mm. Uh, you have stuff like, you know, uh, smart people, mm. free education that creates more smart people, mm. investments, uh, upgrades, and all those things together mm. means that we have economic growth, mm. endogenous growth. Then we have exogenous. 
that's something we cannot affect, right? Mm. So uh, if you're an athlete, let's say that you compete out, um, outside, uh, I guess weather and rain, yeah. uh, temperature, mm. that stuff you cannot predict, mm. but it still affects you, mm. right? So both when it comes to us as individuals and when it comes to, you know, central banks, mm. you know, trying to supervise and facilitate growth and inflation mm. or what have you, this, this distinction between exogenous and endogenous is very important. Mm. Um, endogenous is stuff that you know is you know inside us or mm. uh, um, we can affect in some way. Mm. Exogenous is stuff that happens. Mm. And I think a key difference between entrepreneurs mm. and people that have you know regular jobs like me, mm. <laughs> I'm a teacher, um, is that maybe they don't care so much about the exogenous things. And if you, for example, read Professor Sara Saraswati's book, uh, book uh, chapter here in our book, mm. she really discusses this thing that entrepreneurs, they also create. They create the future. So they create new artifacts, new solutions, new ideas, new organizations. These are endogenous acts. Mm. If they would focus only on the exogenous aspects, stuff they cannot control, mm. I guess it'll be even more frightening, mm. right? It'll be all these exogenous things that affect you, the interest rate, the global economy, what people will think of you, mm. competition, etc. Mm. You can't affect that shit. Mm. So it's better to focus on the endogenous things that you can affect. Mm. Yeah, and it's uh, one thing that I continuously circle back to in my personal journey of growth is the fact that, because um, I was fortunate to have a, a, a career in, in free skiing, and the reason I became good at it was because I, I was only focused on this one thing, mm. right? And I think that mindset, from my perspective, is a very good mindset if you want to become good at something, but as with everything, there's always sor sort of trade-offs. Mm. Um, so, very, very interesting. Um, Carl, as a concluding remark here, I would just like to um, inform the listeners a bit more about the book because mm. uh, you explained that each chapter can be read as a standalone chapter, mm. but they all tie, tie in together to, to one sort of. And the, the first part is the introductory chapter. The second part is the entrepreneurial state, theoretical perspectives. The third part is the entrepreneurial state, entrepreneurial universities and startups. The fourth part is about the entrepreneurial state and sustainability transitions. And the fifth part is from the entrepreneurial state towards evidence-based innovation policy. Do you have a favorite chapter if you cannot pick your own chapter? Oh, that's a very good point. So as a boring teacher and researcher, I, of course, enjoy what we call evidence-based policy, right? Yeah. So for example, my colleague Julius here at the Stockholm School of Economics looks at um, uh, 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 carbon taxes and how that is a very effective way in making these transitions much more effective than other types of initiatives. But for the general reader, I would say um, focus on the women because these are the 
most enjoyable chapters. I don't know how it ended up that way. Maybe it's something about creativity, but that's the way the book is. So read Professor Sarasvati's chapter. Uh, I think is very inspiring and, and has a lot of nuance. Also, I do recommend Dr. Anna Bratzrum's chapter because this is about entrepreneurial buzz, entrepreneurial mm. buzzwords, and the odd things that can happen when you know a, a, a social worker, um, a bureaucrat, or a professor tries to be entrepreneurial. The chapter is a lot of fun. Interesting. Thank you, Carl, for being on the podcast and uh, have a lovely week. Thank you so much, Victor. Thank you.